Okay, so last week we introduced a new motivational tool here at Northland <laughs> to get people involved. Just kidding. If you were here, you know what this is. If you weren't, you're wondering what in the world this is. It's a, a replica of a 19th century harpoon. It was given to me a few years ago by some fellow pastors. And it was to remind me of chapter 62 in a book by a guy named Herman Melville, and the name of the book is Moby Dick. The reason they gave it to me is we were in a group just going through some of Eugene Peterson's writings and, uh, about the pastor, and one of the things that he would point, point it out is what Melville pointed out about the harpooner of a whaling expedition. The same kind of thing can happen to a pastor. And the same thing can happen to any ministry leader, any ministry participant, that exhaustion could get us off the mark, that weariness, distraction can dilute our effectiveness. What Melville, he was a harpooner in the mid-1800s, born in New York City in the early part of the 1800s, but he had a job for a while going out on these whaling expeditions. You're, getting, you're out on the big ship, you, you, you head to whale territory, you see some whales, then the, the smaller hunting boats, these sort of rowboats, but very large ones, team that would row out to the whale, and the harpooner would be in the front of the boat, and he would be rowing right along with everyone else, and when they got close enough, he would hurl the harpoon, it would unfurl, and if it hit its mark, it would stick in, wouldn't be able to pull it back out, and then they would exhaust that whale by chasing it. But the problem was, the harpooners were, would only hit their marks about five out of every 50 times. And Melville pointed out why, and it actually was impactful on the whaling industry. He said, the problem is the harpooners are throwing their dart, which is what he referred to it. Chapter 62 is called the dart. Harpooners would throw their dart out of exhaustion instead of stillness. They'd be distracted, and as a result, that's why they were inefficient. And Peterson said, pastors, make sure you're not throwing your dart out of exhaustion and distraction. Ministry leader, make sure you're not throwing the dart of your calling, your gifting, of what you bring to this movement called Northland. As we're gaining momentum in this new season, make sure that you're not just reacting and in busyness doing ministry without being calibrated at the feet of Jesus. And so these guys, we talked a lot about it, and so before some time away, they gave this to me. God's entrusted to us a calling, a vision, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. We talked about it two weeks ago in our vision weekend. And to be fully alive in Jesus is not just a matter of being alive. If you're brand new to Northland, that might sound like a strange statement. Being alive and biblically speaking, gospel speaking, is not just a matter of whether my heart's beating and my lungs are breathing, but whether I have the life of God in me, which is what happens when I come to Christ and made alive. But if we're going to engage people to be fully alive in Jesus this year, it's a matter of all of us picking up our harpoon and not spearing people, 
but picking up our harpoon and engaging one another to be fully alive in Jesus. What that's going to involve this year, we're looking at three priorities, energizing our, our, our gathered experiences when we're together, energizing those. That's worship. That's small group as well as large group worship. By the way, uh, some of you asked ask me, hey, Marsh Hall, he's our new worship pastor. We introduced him a few weeks ago. He and his family move in from Willow Creek Church in Chicago. People have said, is he here yet? He and Lori and the girls are here. And in two weeks will be his first weekend. We'll be welcoming him, kind of praying over them as a family. So two weeks from today, the uh, Marsh will begin uh, and be praying for them as they get relocated. But it's not just our overall worship experiences in this room, but it's your house church. It's your small group. It's your ministry team. Let's energize those. Let's galvanize our connectedness. Let's do this corporately in community. Christianity is immensely personal, but it's not private. So let's galvanize, grow deeper. Let's, in, in terms of discipleship and, and rootedness in the Word. But it's not just about us. It's also about being mobilized for impact. In this culture and around the world, it's Central Florida and Sri Lanka different because of Northland. So as we're embarking on this year of ministry, we're taking a couple of months to talk about calibrating. That's what we're calling this series, and we're doing it at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is a place to calibrate. It's not a passive place. It's an active place. And for me to throw this dart well, for me to do my ministry and my calling well, I need to do what we're calling the series. I need to calibrate. And that happens sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, if you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10. This is the passage we're going to be going through this month, as well as next month. It happens in Bethany. It's a little village just east of Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry is in full throttle. And he's about to visit the home of a woman named Martha, probably also the home of Mary, we're not sure, but Mary and Martha's sisters, Lazarus, their brother, we get to know them a little bit later in the Gospels, but Lazarus is a guy raised from the dead. This might have been the first time that, uh, that they actually spent some time with him, but bottom line, they are excited. So t Luke chapter 10, verse 38, let's turn to that uh, on the screens, and if you'd follow along with us. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Now, what you're about to see unfold is a choice that another woman makes named Mary, her sister. It's a choice to calibrate. So often we do this, hey, throw the dart and aim later. Do the ministry and then think about it later. It's the classic denial of that principle of sharpening the saw that a lot of you know about. Cutting down trees, a, 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 a logger has to stop and sharpen the saw periodically to make progress. And it feels like, man, I'm wasting time. I'm not, I'm not sawing down trees. I'm sharpening the saw. But in sharpening the saw, you end up with greater effectiveness. This passage is an invitation to sharpen the saw, to calibrate at the feet of Jesus. Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted. Anybody here ever been so busy serving, you kind of get distracted from Jesus? Maybe not you, but you've had some friends where that happened, right? 
Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't, don't you care? And this is what happens always when we're being busy and doing lots of great ministry stuff and, and somebody else isn't and we start getting a little resentful and Martha does it. She says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And then Jesus shocked Martha. Gently, but also firmly. He said, Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you're worried and you're upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen. She's made a decision about what's better, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary has made a decision to first sharpen the saw, to first calibrate. This passage is, 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 is slaying me in some good ways, getting me to hit the, the pause button on the treadmill of my journey, and you and I together hitting the pause button and saying, all right, let's be still and calibrate. Ancient ships would calibrate their compasses in stillness. You got to find a still quiet harbor. And that first, first step of calibrating involves making a decision to be still. It happens, it needs to happen on a daily basis, needs to happen maybe more than once a day, can happen for five minutes or five hours on a day, depending on the day, depending on what's happening. But bottom line, to calibrate in order to do this well and to live my life well, to be a life giver to others is to be still. So that's the first ingredient in calibration. These are progressive. Today we're looking at a second ingredient. Submission. It's not just stillness, but what happens in the stillness? Submission. I want you to go back to the text for a second. Look at the first two verses again. As Jesus and his disciples, verse 38, were on their way, came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And here is the, 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 the climactic statement in a lot of ways in terms of what Mary was doing. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, that's not a statement about the furniture or the lack thereof at Martha's house. No place else to sit, so, oh gosh, she had to sit on the floor. No, no, no. It's a statement that is saturated with the tradition of teaching within Judaism in the ancient Near East where a rabbi would have his Talmudim, his disciples, and they would sit at his feet. Didn't matter if there were other chairs or benches available, they sat at his feet to demonstrate something. So for me to hurl this with accuracy, with energy, with delight, with, with, with effectiveness, I've got to first be still and throw this out of a context of stillness, not distraction. But in that stillness, a second thing has to happen. Submission. Mary was making a statement. She's sitting at the feet of the rabbi, but she's also sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's not passive. She is coming and saying something to Jesus about what she needs. Now, this is one of my favorite things from growing up and uh, Play-Doh. Don't you love it? Now, when you pick up Play-Doh, what are the things, this is the sound you want to hear when you pick up a, a, a container of Play-Doh. This is not the sound. We had issues over the years when my boys were growing up. Who left the Play-Doh open? Because this is what happens. But this is what you want. Play-Doh that the cap's been on, and why is that a good thing? It's because... Oh, look at that. What'd you do today? Well, we saw the preacher get, seemed to get a little high on Play-Doh. <laughs> no, it's just memories. And then first you smell it, isn't that a great thing? But then what's the next thing? Ooh, you can't wait. <sighs> when Mary decides to sit at the feet of Jesus, she is moving from this, which is our natural inclination, to get busy, to get distracted, to not be receptive, to not be malleable, and she's doing this. She says, Jesus, I, I'm ready for you to speak. Here's my life. Sitting at someone's feet in that culture was a statement of submission, of malleability. Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, the prophet speaks the word of God and says, sow for yourselves righteousness. Let's move to that text. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. So you want to reap the fruit of God's love? Break up your unplowed ground. Any farmers here, any gardeners here, you know what happens with unplowed ground. It gets hard, it gets crusty. This happens. He says, break up your unplowed ground. You've got a responsibility to move from this posture, which is moving along, saying, Jesus, glad you're accompanying me with a few of my projects. And hey, yeah, if you do this, do that. Oh yeah, don't, don't be too demanding or anything like this. I got my own life. I know what best will fulfill me. And moving from that posture to, Jesus, I want to sit at your feet. I want to break up my unplowed ground, and I want you to rain showers of righteousness on me, showers of rightness, showers of who I should be as a human being. And so Martha's running around and complains, and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, I want you to hear the malleability of Mary. Every day, it's a choice I've got to make. This happens naturally. This is something that's got to be intentional on a daily basis. And it's not just one time, it's a continual posture. Overnight, I get all crusty. Overnight, I get 
resistant. We, we, we're lured in because of the residue of the fall. We're lured into uh, moving to a default posture. And that default posture is saying, I know best how to do my life. But then when I sit at the feet of Jesus, he says, now we can get to work. Break up your unplowed ground. For it's time, which I love, it's time for him to shower righteousness on you. So what's it look like? What's it look like for me to break up my unplowed ground? What's it look like for me to come before Jesus, sit at his feet, to be submissive? I got to get still in order to hear his heart and orient towards him, but then it's a matter of, of being malleable, being submissive. Let me give you three ingredients of, of that submission. One will involve humility. Me demonstrating a posture of humility in the presence of his greatness. Humility is a response to who he is, to what he does. It's a response to his greatness, and we're not good at that, especially as Americans. In the mid-1700s, a French Enlightenment historian and philosopher named Charles Montesquieu it was a phenomenal uh, interpreter of, of the rule of law for the common people. And he, he actually wrote a book called The Spirit of the Laws. Uh, he was one of the guys that originated separation of powers, unpacked it more. He actually had an influence on the writing of our Constitution. So uh, big time in terms of government. In fact, he talked about three, the three primary governments of, of human beings that, that human beings adopt. And he said, there's, a, there's a, a key factor that enables that form of government to, quote, succeed. Uh, the first form of government he mentioned was totalitarianism, dictatorship. The primary element that's necessary for totalitarianism to be effective is fear. And as soon as a dictator loses that, that manipulation of fear, they begin to lose the, the government. A second, he says, is a democracy. Democracy's primary ingredient, primary ingredient is a civic virtue, a moral conscience. And that's absolutely necessary for democracy to function, which you're, is why you're hearing the groaning in our culture today, because we've lost the moorings in terms of that moral conscience. But he said the third f form of government is a monarchy. And a monarchy, like having a king or queen, is the primary element that will enable a monarchy to be successful is civic honor. Honor. One time, R.C. Sproul was a professor of mine long ago, when one time he talked about how that whole notion of us not knowing any type of court etiquette, 
We're not used to any type of monarch or king or queen, and it impacts our posture towards God, and it impacts this notion of of being able to honor and to acknowledge and even bow before Him, literally as well as figuratively, because we're Americans, and we don't bow to anybody, and we have won our freedom, all sorts of great stuff. But when we let that infiltrate our walk with God, some unhealthy things start happening. Jesus is not just somebody who's campaigning in your life or mine. He's not saying, hey, I, you know, here's my platform and I'd love for you to come along. Uh, That's not the posture that will bring life to me, that will place me in a posture of pliability. You take a look through the Gospels. Let me give you a few verses. You won't have time to look them up, but you can write down the references and look them up later. And I want you to see if you you, you can spot a common theme here. You ready? You guys ready? Here we go. Matthew 9, 18, while he was saying this, meaning Jesus, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him. Mark chapter 5, verse 6, when he saw, this was a demoniac, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Mark chapter 5, verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at Jesus' feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Mark 10, 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, well, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke 5, 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Luke chapter 5, verse 12, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. John eleven thirty two. 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. In John chapter 18, when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers come for him and looking for Jesus, when Jesus identified himself and said, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Uh, what's the common theme there? I, I'm real comfortable with silence up here. I'm just going to walk up here until I hear some call out. What's the common theme? People falling down, people spending a lot of time at Jesus' feet. Why? Because this was not some political candidate, some, not some religious guru that's saying, hey, come alongside and let me kind of improve your life and your standing. In American Christianity, it's, it's this notion that we're, we're alarmingly drawn to of seeing Jesus as our candidate instead of our king. And what Mary is saying is, Jesus, I want to acknowledge something. You're not just part of my religious resume. You're the axis around which my life turns. You're alpha, you're omega, you're beginning. You're in, and I need you. And so this, this is the most logical posture in the world. Humility is not something you drum up. It's a response to who he is, to what he does. And religious consumers, they don't spend a lot of time at the feet of Jesus. There's not a lot of this. It's a lot of this. Jesus, help me with my agenda. But when I'm doing this, every day, I'm spotting His sovereignty. 
I'm grasping glimpses of his greatness. I'm beholding his beauty. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. The Lord says, are you taking notice? Let me tell you something. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and, and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who, he brings out the starry host one by one, calls forth each one of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. That's a great star. I was reading a thing by a guy who's spending, he works down at the South Pole at uh, the, the Amundsen South, uh, Scott, uh, at the Amundsen Scott South Pole Station. His name's Brett Badorf. He writes this. He's a follower of Jesus. You can pick that up fairly quickly. He says, my best moments during the winter here are spent walking outside where isolation and darkness meet. I pause to reflect on God's vast infiniteness, gazing at a crystal clear view of the Milky Way and its constellation and its constellations invisible back home, stepping outside into 90 degrees below Fahrenheit. It's a little different from our winters here. With an average 30 degree wind chill, it's daunting, but every moment in the wild, I feel God's overwhelming presence as I'm made aware of his transcendence, his transcendence, his otherness, his holiness. But it doesn't stop. His greatness is big, but it's also small. He says, I enjoy learning about the sciences that explore the vastness of space, but the more I learn, the more I see the intricate hand of God weaving the tapestry of the sky. You don't get these kind of insights except when you're sitting at the feet of Jesus. One person on the station told me it was absurd amid all this, of this infinite wonder to believe in a God who would be bothered with such an inconsequential planet, let alone the people on it. Huh. Gazing into the unbridled magnificence of our galaxy, however, I felt anything but irrelevant to God. Quite the opposite. I felt God's tender grasp. There's his transcendence, but there's his eminence. And every day is a day of worship. Every day is a day to notice his greatness and in the presence of his greatness to respond with submissive humility. Because when I don't, I eat the lie of my fallen culture that says we're just lucky protoplasm. And we're the masters of our own fate and the, captain, the captains of our own fate and the masters of our own destiny. And Mary is saying, I want to humble myself in the presence of your greatness. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the, the high and lofty one, the one whose name is holy, the one who lives forever. He says, I live in a high and holy place. Let's go to Isaiah 57, verse 15. He says, I live in a high and holy place but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And there's a purpose for that, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. How high of a view of God do you have? 
it will determine how much time you're spending at the feet of Jesus. If we've got a low view of God, we don't see a whole lot of need for much more than just some good works that will bridge the gap between us and Him. But if we have a high view, we come absolutely open, which paves the way for that second posture of submission. It's not just humility in the presence of His greatness, but it's receptivity in the presence of His grace. How much trouble do you have receiving from Jesus? This is a posture that says, let me prove to you, God, how much I've earned your love and how much I actually deserve you to do some good stuff for me. This says, I got nothing, and I need you. I've told some of you years ago, so I'll give you the the abbreviated version, but when I was back in college, I had a summer job of selling books door to door. Talk about a scary thought. You open a door and you see me smiling in that hot Arkansas heat. Hello, Mrs. Jones. I got some books for you that could change your life. I had a Chevrolet Impala that I drove around that summer, and it got beat up. It was already beat up when the summer started. It got beat up even more. Uh, it's, it's, one, one evening, my roommate and I, we pulled up to a laundromat that was next to a gas station, and I put it in park, let the door open. We were taking clothes in, hear a horn honking out in the parking lot. I turn around, and my car's gone. I come out and see that my car, my Impala, had jumped out of park into reverse and was slowly idling back, and the way the tires were, it came back at this angle, right next to a car that was parked getting gas from the pump. And the, the, the horn honking was the woman sitting in the passenger side, her husband was inside the gas station, and she can't get out, and she sees this, this car coming towards her, and she can't do a thing but honk the horn. Now, it came around perfectly. It didn't scratch their car at all. It came around in such a way, what stopped it was my open, car, my open driver's side door, you know, that nice cushy inside hit the front bumper, and they didn't get a scratch. What happened to my door, though, was anything but harmless. It bent the door back. I couldn't move it. It wouldn't budge. So being the ingenious, the, 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 the genius college student that I was, I asked the mechanic there at the gas station for a sledgehammer. And I went over to the side of the, the lot and proceeded to beat the living daylights out of the hinge of my car door to get it to, to shut. I mean, everybody is watching this idiot trying to fix his car door with a sledgehammer. While I'm in the midst of all of this very creative and almost fruitless activity, this Arkansas gentleman with a wonderful Arkansas accent pulled up in his pickup truck and rolled down the window and said, hey, son, need some help? You know what I said? No, no, I got this. And I'm sure he thought, sure you do. Everybody on this block can tell you've got this. So I proceeded to get it shut to about like that. It didn't all the way, but it was good enough. I had to crawl in and out the rest of the summer because the door wouldn't, wouldn't open and close. And I had to deal with people pulling up next to me at red lights saying, hey, buddy, your door's, un- your door's open. But uh, it, it, it worked. 
And then a few days later, I was in town coming up about 30 miles an hour to a stoplight, and a kickball comes out in front of the car, and I know a kid's probably going to follow, so I slammed on brakes and something from the front seat fell down, hard plastic, wedged, leaned up against the brake. No kid came out. I let go of the, the brake. That thing wedged behind it, and now I approach the rear end of a pickup truck with a steel girder as a rear bumper who stopped at the stoplight, and I try to push the brakes and it won't stop. I slam right into the back of him. Didn't do a thing to his steel girder, but crushed my grill, buckled my hood. I'm standing out in the middle of the road in the heat, and the guy looks at his, the back of his truck, it's not a scratch on it, kind of shrugs his shoulders, said, man, sorry about that, and he gets in and drives off. I'm standing there looking at this, and a guy comes up in a pickup truck with a pretty cool a pretty cool Arkansas accent rolls down his window and he asked me a question. You know what the question was? You need some help. You know what I said? No, I got this. I'm looking at him through the steam. And so I proceeded to come up with some further ingenious ways to fix my car. I got up on the hood, you know, it was kind of buckled like this. I got up and jumped up and down to get it pressed back down. I put some radiator stuff in to seal the radiator, and then I wired it shut with some bailing wire. About a week later, I'm driving about 50 miles an hour on a country road in Arkansas, and a gust of wind catches it just right, and the hood of my car peels up over the windshield. So that I'm now looking at all the bird droppings that were, were on, actually they're still on the hood of the car, it's just that it's right here. Thankfully there were no other cars going and I blindly felt my way off to the shoulder side of the road. I'm sitting there, so hot, the air conditioning doesn't work now because of all the stuff that happened to the radiator, just sweating to death, staring at the bird droppings. And I can hear the crunch of gravel with the tires of a pickup truck that pulls up next to me. Different guy, different pickup truck. But same question. Hey, buddy, you need some help? You know what I said? I said, yes, sir. I do. It was pride that was keeping me from saying I needed help. Finally, the pride was gone. And what Mary is doing is saying, I need some help. She's receptive. Humility paves the way for receptivity. Humility in the presence of His greatness paves the way for receptivity to His grace. Hebrews chapter 4. He's not somebody that can't sympathize with us. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you have been, If you've at some point or another turned that phrase, throne of grace, into a religiosity cliche, in the name of Jesus, stop it. And I'll say the same thing to myself. It's not a cliche. Throne 
of grace. Grace is God giving to us, not what we deserve, but what we need. And yes, there could just be the greatness, and we would need to be humble, but in His greatness, He also comes to us in grace. Throne, greatness, grace, Him giving us not what we deserve, but what we need. Transcendence, eminence. God is great, and God is good. God is infinite, and God is personal. And when I'm at the feet of Jesus, and letting Him calibrate my journey, adjust my priorities, stillness is necessary for me to be here, but then submission. And I say, Jesus, I need help. You see, the reason we don't say we need help is because we have a problem with the first ingredient. There's not humility there because we have a low view of God. And if I have a low view of God, I can bridge the gap between God and me with my good works. But if I have a high view of God, there's an infinite gap there. I cannot bridge the gap, and I am absolutely dependent upon Him. And the beauty and the power of the cross is that both His greatness and His grace were demonstrated. Infinite God-man dying for our sin, paying a penalty that it would take me eternity to pay. And he says, so Matt, what do you need? There's not a one of us that hasn't had that point of saying, I'm tired of failing in the same ways, sinning in the same ways. And we get prideful. And we start saying, I've got to make it up to him. He says, what you need to do is sit at my feet in humility and receptivity. Let me love you. As the rabbi pointed out in his prayer centuries ago, thou art great and we are small. Thou art sovereign and we are weak. Thou art infinite and we are finite. Thou art eternal and we tarry but just a little while. But with all thy greatness and with all thy power, thou dost bend down low and listen to the sound of our tears as they strike the ground. I need you, Jesus. He says, I know. Then comes the necessity of the third ingredient. Out of that humility in the presence of His greatness. By the way, that can also be seen in human relationships. If I'm humble before God, I'll be humble before other people. If I'm not humble before other people, I'm certainly not humble before God. But out of that humility in the presence of His greatness that breeds a receptivity to His grace, then comes a pliability in the presence of his guidance. So it's not just, hey, great, thanks for forgiving me. I'm going to go off and do it. He says, no, let, let's, let's shape you a little bit more. Yeah, it might be three steps forward and two steps back. It might be, okay, I didn't quite get it this time, and I've got to, he says, all right, I got you covered. But let's talk about what you need to do and the direction you need to go. It's matters of His authority and His obedience and getting into His Word and hearing His will. You guys, uh, any, any Princess Bride fans here? 
Okay, what's, what's Wesley say over and over to her at the beginning of that movie? Huh? As you wish. It's his way of saying that he loved her. Let's move out of a, a cute little trivial movie to a, a matter of life and death for me as a human being. What will bring me life is getting on my knees and sitting at the feet of Jesus and humbling myself in the presence of His greatness, being receptive according to His grace and needing it, but then being pliable to His guidance and on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis saying, as you wish, Jesus, as you wish. Jesus modeled himself, saying, not my will, but yours be done. In John chapter 4, his disciples came up to him after he'd been with a woman at the well. In verse 31, John 4, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. This is really a funny text. It's profound as well, but it's a, uh, you know, you can see, then his disciples said to each other, hmm? Could somebody have brought him food? And then he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And doing his will is liberating, it's excruciating, it's freeing, it's fulfilling. It's uphill, it's downhill. And it's all under the umbrella of His will. Jesus points it out in John chapter 6, two chapters later. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. What's eternal life? We've talked about it over and over, John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So there's an intimacy there. There's an intimacy before Him, submitting, submitting to His greatness, to His grace, but also to His guidance, to His authority. It's me coming before Him and saying, here are all the keys to these locked doors of rebelliousness in my journey, where I, I say, yeah, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I keep this here, keep that there. And we lock them overnight. We get crusty overnight. And it's saying, Jesus, I'm sorry. I want to feast on your guidance. I want to intimately relate with you in such a way that I obey you. So when Mary sits at his feet, it's not a statement of a lack of furniture. It's a demonstration of a human being who's becoming fully alive in Jesus. I'm going to ask our team to come out, and we're going to give you a chance to do just what we're talking about. Experience His eternal His will for you is that you would have eternal life, and eternal life is not just future tense, as we've talked about here, but it's present tense. And it's centered in intimacy with Him, and intimacy with Him is relating with the God who is, not the God that we want. Intimacy that involves embracing His greatness. Embracing His grace, embracing His guidance, humble, receptive, but also pliable. And with that, pouring out my heart to Him. So I want you to do that right where you are. Let the words of a 17th century priest, Francois Finelot, 
tee it up for you here. He says, tell God all that's in your heart. So in just a moment, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. Not just to watch some people sing, but tell them what's in your heart. As one unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend, tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes that he may help you to conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved tastes for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself and to others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses and needs and troubles, this, not this, he says, there will be no lack of what to say. And blessed are they who attain to such familiar, unreserved dialogue with God. I'm going to give you four or five minutes and then give you the benediction. You can waste this time, or you can use this time. I want to engage you to be fully alive in Jesus. So I encourage you, be this, not this. So go ahead, lay it all down.